Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. Go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal. Proceeds support this and other Feral Audio podcasts. You know that feeling of like having nothing in front of you and how on paper that's like a really thrilling thing. It can be a good thing. It can be a revitalizing thing. But there's also something very haunting about having nothing in front of you because you're like, I'm, I'm a worthless human being. I have nothing happening, you know. The beauty of the clean slate is that you could be anything. You could become anything. But you... You own nothing. Thinking about the end of high school, when you literally are just this kind of blob of potentiality or something, there's that weird feeling of, like, excitement and total destitution. I took this year off, wasted my life, came to sort of the end, almost to the verge of death. I've got the 17 staples in my head. I go back up to Boston, experiment with almost dying again, go off to college. Throughout, like, my drug experience specifically, I had dumbed myself down. You know how, like, when you're a kid, there's an intrinsic braininess to things? Like, you're just curious. You want to, like, think, and you want to understand, wrap your head around things. And then you become a teenager... And you hit the wall at some point, you know, where you're sort of like, what the fuck does anything mean anyway? And you sort of stop learning. You stop paying attention in school. Yeah. There's a point you get to where you're just like, I guess I don't really need to listen to anybody or like, or do well. It's like, because you start defining yourself by your own internal. Maybe I'm not talking about anybody else but myself, but I thought, (laughs) I thought this is like, in a way... Once you get out from underneath the parental entity, once you get out into the world, there's like that heyday of hedonism. For me specifically, I got to that, I hit that wall and I lost, throughout the cloud of drug experience, I I somehow lost my ground of curiosity. Like I lost the intellectual impulse. Like, I was just kind of spinning and floundering at that point. And in order to come back from near death and uh, the Bermuda Triangle of meaninglessness, you have to discover something. You have to, like, experience something new that sets a new watermark for you, right? You have to be inspired again. You have to wake up. And 
for me, I met Duncan. That's my lucky thing that happened to me. You know, without him, I wouldn't have considered curiosity, intellectualism exciting. And the people that were around me, they just weren't lighting that up for me. They weren't, they weren't evoking the sense that there was a reward in intellectualism. So when I met Duncan, everything pivoted. When I went to the Sippy School, the first day in line to get my ID, I got the sense immediately that this is a liberal arts school that sold themselves with a brochure on the concept of you being a unique person. You're a special person. You're creative. You don't think like everybody else. It's expensive to go to this school. This is a private liberal arts school. It's like... This is no joke. They've got to fucking sell this shit. So the brochure comes to your house. Your kid, a certain kind of customer, is going to buy that product, right? And so they sell it on this thing like, you know, you're not like the rest of those people. You get the feeling when you walk in the cafeteria like, okay, there's 700 people at this school. And 600 of them are people that would like to be creative, They would like to be creative. They read the brochure and they were like, this is for special people, you know? And it's like, man, I just fucking woke up here and I got to get my shit together. You know, like I was like, maybe not a hundred percent conscious of it, but I was like wanting to repair myself. The idea of spending four years anywhere seemed insane, but I knew that something good had to come out of it. I was a walking bag of regrets and all the things that I'd done wrong to myself. Not that I was going to correct any of those things, but that I was going to become self-aware of what I could become. In some way, I was going to repair my mind. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I was going to get down to some sort of serious work. So meeting someone who was actually basically a Hare Krishna, which Duncan basically was to some degree, you know, you'd come over to his room to go get fucked up and he'd be chanting and you could hear the beads clacking and you could hear him I mean the door was locked he wasn't coming to the door like he was a serious guy and people thought that that was pretty bizarre you know or like let's say people thought it was really peripheral but you know looking back now we could see that they were the ones that were peripheral he was on to something and I defended him. I felt pretty strongly about it. One day, one of my friends said, you know, that guy's a sucker. And it like really hurt my feelings. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, he's the smartest person I know. That's pretty much what I said. I was just like, this dude is so intelligent. Like, how can you just say that? And I've talked to that friend since. And he's like, you know, he totally takes it back. <laughs> We were seen as not only rejects, but like mangled misfits, like things that couldn't be integrated. You know, everybody else is like joining in the center, right? In this like happy hippie community that like works together and lives together. We weren't integrating. And isn't this part of like the beauty of the story is like an ugly duckling thing is like someone who 
isn't applicable and who is left outside and pushed outside and not recognized on any level coming to their own fruition and taking the true uniqueness that the brochure was talking about and turning it into like an alchemical gold, you know, making it work, discovering themselves on a practical level that really pays off, that brings a salvation. If you're going to sell uniqueness, if you're going to sell creativity, that's a pretty thorny thing to sell because you just are that or you're not, you know? You're just fucking doing it or you're not. You know, this isn't like a playground, a spiritual playground. It's like you just, you're going to fucking do it or you're not. You're going to recognize the spiritual battlefield for what it is or you're going to read a fucking book, you know? and then put the book down and forget about it. A 
essentially I had hit a wall because I had lost any reason to trust any intellectual impulse anymore. I, I had dumbed myself down. I had basically, I would failed myself, essentially. And at the bottom of this depression, at the bottom of this kind of directionlessness and this sort of empty future, I walked into my girlfriend's bedroom one day, and I think somebody must have given her the book Nausea by Sarp. And I just looked down and saw this paperback book. And, I, you know, I wasn't even interested in writers or anything. This is back after high school and I'm just, like, really going nowhere. And I just picked up the book for some random reason. I don't even know why. And read the back paragraph that summarized what the book Nausea is about. And literally inside the first three sentences or something of of the summary of the philosophy that the book was built on. I'd never seen words put together into an equation that said what it said. I'd never seen words used to describe what essentially existentialism is, but I'd never seen words describe myself ever. There's just another reason, you know, that I would never trust anyone and why I had a guru that was this self-destructive, insane creative force is because I saw myself in him. It's the only thing I ever saw myself in. That's why we had such an intense bond is because we lived on Mars together. We lived outside of everything together. And then I picked up this book and I was like, you know, I didn't even open the book. I just read the back paragraph that, like, sells it at Borders or whatever. In a way, my brain just lit up. Out of nowhere, I was like, you mean to tell me that there's a philosophy about how I feel? I couldn't believe that. I was blown away. You know, rather than being, like, intimidated by something, like when you hear a great Led Zeppelin song where you're like, I can't even imagine writing that or being able to play like that. Or rather than being like, oh, my God, this person invented this thing that I've never heard about and I must try to figure out or assimilate to, Rather than feeling like this was like this crazy thing I, I didn't understand, I read these three sentences and was like, this is like my brother. This is my family, you know, and, and this is me. So it wasn't even like, uh, wow, what a great writer or what a great idea. It was like, holy shit, I have a community I have, I have an actual family. I'm related to this person. Maybe I'm fucking French. I don't know. There's some, something is going on here. I think I must have took the book and just started reading it. You know, I don't think she noticed it was gone. Just the act of reading felt incredibly foreign to me. And I started reading the words and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. He's just describing my internal world. There's a very kind of like mocking tone to this character 
And you know you can see with Rimbo and, and all these people that They're super punk Like these are punk motherfuckers Sartre is the guy that's plunking down essays in front of the world stage of intellectualism saying your god doesn't exist you're fucking idiots and with the power of his verse you know or like with the power of his ability to arrange words on a page he's blowing people out of the water i mean i, I couldn't believe that you could use your brain to represent that side of the universe i just didn't know people were doing that i felt so stupid and literally the next week, it must have been Thanksgiving or something, my mom and me <clears throat> drove down to Georgia to see my grandma. And my grandma, in her way, I wouldn't say she was brilliant, but my grandma was a really smart, extremely progressive lady back in the day. She was the art critic for the Louisville Courier and interviewed Andy Warhol and you know, I don't know how powerful she was, but she was a serious art critic. You know, I could throw out like the most abstract kraut rock in the car while I'm driving my grandma somewhere and she'd just be fucking grooving. You know, she gets it. She's pretty intellectually adept. She could, she could kind of talk with anyone in terms of world history or anything. She's, she's a pretty fascinating person in her way. So she had a massive book collection strewn all the way around the borders of this farmhouse that, that our family owns. And for the first time, I started looking at the books on the shelves. For the first time in my life, I was like, I wonder what these fucking books say. And a lot of it, of course, is just like, you know, ancient Greek pottery methods and, you know, things I just had no use for. But I swear to God... This is days after I found nausea on the ground And I just Walked towards these massive bookshelves And reached my hand out And pulled out one paperback And it was crime and punishment It was like Four days after I'd gotten nausea I opened it up and I read like The first sentence And go back and open up Crime and punishment and you're just like, the first sentence, you're like, Jesus Christ. The fucking generic advertisement on the front of the paperback says, the greatest novel ever written. And you open it up and read the first sentence, you're like, I think I'm holding the greatest novel ever written. Whereas Kolnikov seemed to be me. I felt like, you know, oh my God, how is it that four days later... After nausea, I pick up this book, and all of a sudden, my life is just different. You know, everything's different. I'm like, I have a family, and my fathers are Dostoevsky and Sartre, and like these are the these are my motherfucking peers. You know, like these are my friends. Like that's who I'm gonna hang out with now. I bought everything you could buy. I went to library sales. I did whatever. I could do just acquire the most, you know, rare short stories they would write. They both wrote some similar stories. Like Sartre has some stuff that almost sounds like notes from underground. It prepped me for what would be meeting Duncan. You know, I was like, oh, there's a way to use my brain that is rebellious. 
there's a way to use my brain that really expresses who I am. And I didn't know that was possible up to that point. Everything, an entire new horizon just unfolded in front of me. And I don't think that that made me more excited about being forced to go to college. Strangely enough, I just couldn't reconcile those two things like, oh, you can study this. I didn't think you could. Only a month or two later, I went to a library sale and I was digging through the piles of books looking for, you know, The Idiot or something by Dostoevsky. And I came upon a book that just said The Outsider. The Outsider is actually the original title of The Stranger. And I was getting into Camus, but Camus seemed a little bit more flowery. I liked the straight dope of Sartre. I liked the angry, just like really drastic stuff. It's so chiseled down into this this kernel that just cannot be chiseled down any further. It's a diamond. The title, The Outsider, and was like, is this that Camus book? You know, I didn't know. But it was written by this guy, Colin Wilson, who you know, back then was not, this was someone who was kind of lost to the dusty backs of library sales. But now, you know, people are pulling him out. He's gotten a lot more popular because he did a lot of writing on the occult, which is kind of like not necessarily what I thought he was the best at. He has a pulpy side of his writing and it's a little bit immature sometimes. And sometimes it's a little bit sensationalist. The Outsider was his breakout book. He was a fascinating guy because he was like super young and he wrote it when he was super young. But essentially, the reason why that book was so interesting is what he does is he takes Raskolnikov and he takes Naja and he takes Herman Hess and he takes Jesus and he hybridizes them into one central figure the outsider that has existed throughout time and has always existed. He doesn't hybridize them into a character. He finds the, the core pillar between all of them and their characters in literature that essentially represent the spirit of what the outsider is. He gives it a name, this thing, the rebel, He gives it this new kind of slant. And I'm not saying it's like the greatest book ever written or anything like that. But for the moment that I found it and coming straight out of those other books and going where I needed to go, it was the ultimate perfect timing for my brain to synthesize, oh, this is what I am, you know? Right. Later, Carl Jung colored in that world for me, especially this uh, massive two-volume, extremely expensive interpretation of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Carl Jung does this crazy interpretation of it, and I would just go down to the Asheville Library and get these books and come home, and there was like a little cat that would sneak into my room, and I would just sit in bed... I didn't need anybody else or anything in the world. 
I mean, like the kid, the never ending story or something. It was like, I just existed on a planet alone with these new family members of mine stretched through time and continents. And that gives birth to the situation that Duncan walked into. And essentially he almost shows me an applicable way that life could be colored back in by using your mind and by remaining incredibly curious about this new intellectual horizon that you can develop and expand. And and I was like, fuck, I could like build my own philosophy, you know? And without Duncan, I don't think I would have thought it was really possible.
I just went to Puerto Rico and um, there's a castle there right on the water that all the tourists go to including me called San Felipe del Moro and I was walking along the perimeter of the walls trying to picture people in the 16th century living there in these like essentially like cave walls and you can walk into the barracks and look out the barred windows towards the sea and there's nothing that comes to your mind that carries any particular gloriousness to it it's hard to imagine royalty even enjoying themselves in such a kind of isolated lonely area so you leave the barracks and you walk out to the ocean and there's these little perimeters that run across the rocks of the water and it's really beautiful but within 10 minutes you pretty much you've seen it all you know what the water is going to look like lapping up against the rocks for hundreds of years so first you build the castle in the 16th century you've built your turrets and all your protective outer walls so a couple ships come you defeat them and then what you wait you post a flag on some grass and you say this is it what happens when nobody comes to attack you and decade passes and then hundreds of years pass you've got this massive structure that is supposed to symbolize what you own symbolize your impact on the world and the galaxy you did this with your time you you watched as slaves built up a castle with your name on it and then you go up into the tallest tower and you sit there. All victory is a Pyrrhic victory. All victory is ruled by time. You'll never keep anything. You never win. It's not possible. Can you imagine the homesickness of a Spanish soldier that's like 2,000 miles away? from where he came from and he doesn't know why and he's just sitting on a bench looking at the water waiting for some ship to float up that's supposed to try to kill him and it never does that's life that is actually life not knowing how you got into this and why you're so far away from home or maybe life is also climbing your way all the way to the top and then getting into that ivory tower and looking out at the same view from just 20 feet above that lowly surf that has nothing and realizing that it was all a waste of time. You had a certain crease in time and space to spend and you fucked it up trying to earn something that was never real. Every person in the world throughout history has looked out a window and wondered these things and never had an answer. What was worth doing in the first place? 
the futility of being a king in the 16th century that sits in a tower above a castle looking out at water, waiting for someone to try to steal away what he only has for a few years anyway is really the ultimate picture of absurdity, of, of the fleeting moment that you think you have on this earth. of what Christopher Columbus dubbed El Puerto Rico, the rich port, when he discovered it on his second voyage westward in 1493. For centuries, ships of the seven seas have crossed the bar under the ramparts of El Moro Fortress, mightiest of Puerto Rico's many historic ports. Descartes was the most famous philosopher in the world. He was Sartre's forefather. He was, he was the god of modern thought. During the day, he spent his time performing kind of mental acrobatics. Much like the king up in the ivory tower, he was the king of philosophy. So he was dependent on to create a logic that stood up straight. Unfortunately, like most eras in which we're born, nobody actually wanted a logic that stood up straight. So they paid him, expected him to create a logic that conformed to what they wanted to see. Now he knew that this was an absurd task. He knew that creating philosophy for kings and, and priests was a total joke. And it haunted him. So when he would go home at night, he would stare into the fireplace. And because he knew 
that everybody depended on him to create a feasible fabric of reality. Because he knew that he held that responsibility, he took the source of of his own thoughts back down to their base, to the mouth of the river of where they came from. And what happened was everything disappeared in his hands. The tether disappeared. So to mend this oncoming tide of unrealness at night, Descartes would drink from a barrel of water with tar in it in the insane belief that the tar in the water would glue his mind to his body. I just happened to know this particular story because my father figure who taught me in Duncan at college was a Taoist genius and he just died last week and I like to think about a lot of the things he used to say to me not that I even sometimes understood them but I can hear his voice echoing specific sentences that I'll never forget until I die because he was gifted with an amazing sense of timing and I think that when the teacher hits you on the head with the meditation stick like a joke or like a song line timing is kind of really everything in terms of them knowing what you need to hear in that moment and when I met him you know I was pretty much estranged from my father my whole life which I was super fine with. I I didn't want any authoritarian figure around. I wanted to be free. I wanted to just think what I wanted to think. And my mom knew that that's what I wanted, and we were happy alone. But it just so happened that when I met this teacher, I was really, really, really lost. For the first time in my life, I, I needed some sort of superego, you know. I needed some, maybe some sort of male figure in my life. I never really liked men. I really liked being around my mom and my grandma and the women in my family. But this guy, John Casey, our teacher, he transcended, <clears throat> he transcended everything I'd ever known about a thinker he was a total rebel like his brain could do backflips over anybody he actually won the uh, national debate championship three years in a row I think it was in the early 60s and then he just quit because it was so boring for him he became a, a bit of an underground kind of rebel political criminal at the time and the cops beat him up so bad that till the day he died he had some serious jaw problems because they beat him so bad with a nightstick. <clears throat> I loved him so much. My dad is very, very dead. But um, 
but I've never been able to process it really. So when someone dies that actually makes me grieve in any way, I feel really good about that. Because I just know I'm actually finally feeling something after coming from a place where I felt absolutely nothing, which is really one of the worst hells you can experience. And when I met this father figure of mine in my freshman year, my mind didn't even work anymore. I mean, he knew. He was like, he'd say things to the whole class about how I was crazy and shit. And it kind of hurt my feelings but he would make jokes about how I could take it or something. Over time, I started to get my fingers in the wall of this terrible pit that I had fallen into. And when he saw that my mind was going to actually get me out of this shit... I think it freaked him out because what was once just a total piece of shit was about to turn into something that knew more than it knew it could know and was shocked the shit out of me. He said to me one day, I think one day you're going to crack the code. And I just laughed. Because uh, I think he thought I was going to write a book or something. He, he thought that my goal was to be an intellectual. And it, as soon as he said I was going to crack the code, or, I remember immediately thinking, like, he doesn't understand. I'm just going to go play music and... That's just what I was born to do And I think maybe I realized That wasn't a very lofty goal I'd already given up on it Several times My mom Really put a lot of pressure on me To go see him When he was dying I just couldn't do it Essentially, because I didn't have any time. I just didn't have any time. I had to fly to, like, Turkey the week he was dying. and I couldn't think of anything that I needed to say to him. I just... My mind was stumped. And I've gone through this before with people who are dying, and I just... I usually just don't know what I have to say. I just... There were times when my face had been frozen. Just dropped into an expression of non-existence just no feeling it's 
something beyond unhappiness. Every day I don't remember looking forward to anything besides two things. One was I would climb this tree. It was the only thing I liked. And the reason why was because I'd have to run really fast and kind of kick up off the, the bottom and grab these limbs and pull myself up and I could climb for 10 minutes. It's so tall. And by the time I got to the top, I'd always have forgotten what was bothering me. And as a transformative alchemical device, this was the only thing in the world that could erase my mind for some reason. Just physical activity maybe, or just finally like touching the earth and actually feeling like I understood what it was or something having a relationship with something like some something and the other thing I did was I would take these these baths at night again just really sort of to be alone and I would just stare at the wall. It seemed like hours until I could finally put it into words what I wanted to do. It came to me very, very slowly. And like a, a cloud or something, it took a shape over the course of two years two really bad years and when it turned into a question turned into words I knew what I wanted to do I could say out loud in the bathtub I could say to myself all I want to do is appreciate my life. Just that. I couldn't do it. So I had to start from the very, very, very beginning. I had to go all the way back to being born again. And I had to watch my body, I had to watch my body rot as my mind tried to figure out what it was that I needed. At the end of these two years, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was underwater. I could see the sun through the water. And everything was really hazy. And as I focused on the sun, 
I heard the voice of God and God said are you ready and without even a millisecond of being able to think or do anything I just said yes 